Well, we have come now today to the conclusion of our study in the subject of the covenants. Uh, I hope to next Lord's Day have a final summary lesson on the covenants, but as far as our book goes, um, we've come now to uh, this very last chapter uh, that talks about living the promises. And as we have surveyed through the major covenants of the scripture, um, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Old Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, and the New Covenant, we have been exposed to a great deal of information about God, about ourselves, and about the nature of our relationship with Him, which relationship is always on the basis of, and by means of, and on the terms of, the covenants. You see, if you don't understand the covenants, you don't understand the nature of your relationship with God. Because covenants define relationships. We've said that a hundred times. We're going to say it a hundred times more. Covenants define relationship. And God does not relate to us at all. Except through covenants. You can't just waltz up to God and have a relationship with him on your own terms. Okay? God relates to us on the basis of his covenants. Those are the terms upon which um, we approach him and interact with him and if we are ignorant of the covenants and we neglect the covenants then we have no grounds upon which to uh, have any assurance that God's going to have anything to do with us whatsoever it's kind of like a woman okay um, you know you just don't waltz up to a woman and go to bed with a woman if you're not in a marriage covenant with her right okay but if you're in a marriage covenant with her then you can do those things and so in the same way, you don't just waltz up to God and start having an intimate personal relationship with him if you're not in a covenant relationship with him. He says, you're a stranger. Keep your distance. I mean, if you're not in a covenant with a woman, she's not going to want you to come up and start trying to get close, right? She's going to push you away. At least you should. And so in the same way, uh, we don't approach God except through uh, uh, having a covenant relationship with him. And so... This is absolutely a vital part of our understanding of the nature of the gospel and God's saving work and God's saving purposes. Okay? So today what we want to do is talk about the practical applications of the covenants in our lives. Now that's a gigantic subject. We've been uh, covering that uh, to some degree as we have gone through our studies together. Uh, but what the author of our book points out, and I think he does a very good job of doing so, is that the book of Hebrews, in particular, is a book that deals with the application of the doctrine of the covenants. And why is that? Well, because the book of Hebrews is a book that uh, sets forth its whole argument based on the biblical covenants and their implications in our lives and their applications to our conduct and our behavior. So now that we are educated about the covenants, how does this information guide the way that we're supposed to live today? So what I want you to do is turn, please, in your Bible to the book of Hebrews, and uh, we're going to just survey through some of the applicatory passages in that book that speak to us about our responsibilities in relationship to the, um, 
the covenants that it, it covers. <clears throat> now, as I said previously, uh, we are incredibly blessed in that we are living in the last times. And what I mean by that is the last times is that time period after which there will be no more covenants. All the covenants that ever were going to be made have been made and they're done. And so the last times are the times from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus. That entire span of now 2,000 years uh, is called the last times in the scripture, which will culminate with what? The day of the Lord. It's one day. Okay? So we're living in the last times, which will culminate in the last day. Uh, and during these last times, we are enjoying the benefits and the blessings of having been the recipients of all of God's revelation and all of God's covenants. Now, when you look at the covenants, when they started out, the privileges they conveyed were lesser. I mean, phenomenally great, but still small. And then as the covenants uh, were, as, as further covenants were made, more and more and more privileges and blessings were included and conveyed. Until we get to the new covenant, which we uh, enjoy being under the blessings of, we have the greatest privileges of all. And so as we come to Hebrews chapter uh, 2, uh, the author of the book of Hebrews in verse 1 begins to address this privilege that we have. And he says, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip away, is the idea. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. Now let's stop there for a minute. What's he talking about when he's talking about the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense or reward? He's talking about the old covenant there. Okay, Verse 2 is a reference to the old covenant. He says, look, if under the old covenant there were very severe sanctions for the violation of that degree of covenantal relationship and light, verse 3, how much more? How shall we escape? If we neglect so great salvation, that is, that which is conveyed to us under the new covenant, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, that is, the Lord Jesus, the four Gospels, who was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Those are the New Testament epistles, the apostles. Verse 4, God also bearing them, that is, the apostles, witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. So what he's saying is, look, you people have way more light, way more privilege, way more blessing than did the people under the old covenant. If they neglected that covenant, abandoned that covenant, and repudiated that covenant, they came under severe judgment. I mean, just read the Old Testament, right? Uh, you know, from Exodus 20, clear to Malachi, what's it a record of? A lot of it is God's judgment on Israel for neglecting and abandoning and betraying the Old Covenant, right? They went into captivity for it. You remember all that. Well, if that 
kind of sanction was brought against them for neglecting that covenant, how much more will sanctions and punishments be brought against us for neglecting our covenant with so much greater light and privilege that it contains? Now, of course, the reason for the warning in Hebrews chapter 2 is because these Hebrew Christians, as we saw, and we preached through this book recently, were in danger of, in fact, abandoning the new covenant. They were in danger of, in fact, betraying it and violating it and neglecting it and turning away from it. In a word, of going apostate. And so, what do we have in this book but a ton of warnings, reproofs, admonitions to the people of God regarding the uh, implications of the new covenant to them and the responsibilities they bear and the risks that they run in relationship to that covenant if they violate it. So notice, if you will, then, chapter 3, beginning at verse 6. He says... In chapter 3 and verse 6, But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So he says Moses had a house, that was the old covenant. Jesus has a house, that's the new covenant. We're in that house if, if what? If we don't turn our backs on him, that's what? Okay. He says, if we persevere, verse 6, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. That is, he's not saying, you know, you're in the new covenant under his auspices if you live a really, really, really good life and never sin anymore. He doesn't say that. He says you're under it if you continue to believe and trust and be loyal and faithful to Christ, continue to confess him before men and continue to follow him with all the degree of grace that God's given to you. You don't turn your back on them and, and turn away and say, Christianity, poof, I don't want anything to do with that anymore. Notice verse 7. He says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost says, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation. Now he goes back to the old covenant. He talks about how they repudiated it. Today, if you will hear your voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart. They have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Now that's the judgment that fell on those who didn't keep the old covenant. You remember they went to Kadesh Barnea. They didn't believe God. They wouldn't go into the land. They believed the ten spies instead of the two spies. As a result, God said to them, look, after all I've done by way of proving my credibility, my power, my love, my grace, my commitment to you, you're going to turn your back on me? Well, forget it. You're not going into the promised land, which was the picture of heaven. And in the same way today, with all God has done for us in the person of Jesus, in giving us the scriptures, in giving us all the blessings of the new covenant, we're going to turn our back on him? He says, forget it. You're not going into the promised land, namely heaven. The new heavens and the new earth. Okay, So that's why he then gives the exhortation in verse 12. Take heed, brethren. Learn a lesson from your predecessors. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. I can't tell you 
uh, with sadness in my heart how many Christians I've run across who have allowed an evil heart of unbelief to rise up in them and they have departed from Christianity. So don't think it can happen to you. What's the remedy? How are you going to keep from having that evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God? Here's how, verse 13. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. It's not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but meeting together and so much the more as the day approaches. Provoking each other to what? Love and good works. It's by being here right now that you are protecting yourself from apostasy from the new covenant. And also, Christian fellowship in your own home. He says daily. We meet twice a week on Sundays and and Wednesdays. Uh, Each day in your home. Husbands and wives and children and parents. Parents and children need to exhort each other. Let's follow the Lord today. Let's serve Him today. And thus... We are not uh, deceived by sin. Uh, That's what verse 13 says, lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin lies. It presents all kinds of lies to your mind. And unfortunately, Christians believe those lies and buy into those lies that there's not somebody tapping them on their shoulder and say, hey, wait a second, you haven't thought about A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You go, oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, so I'm going to push that lie of the devil away, which says... God doesn't love me, God's cruel, God fill in the blank with all the things that causes people to be angry at God and thus depart from God. Verse 14, for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. That is, perseverance to the end of your life And faith in Christ and faithfulness to Christ is what demonstrates that you genuinely have salvation. And so people who make a profession of faith and follow the Lord for a little while and then fall away from the Lord and never go back to the Lord are not eternally secure. They're eternally lost. Because it's the nature of the salvation that Christ brings that not only does it redeem us, it keeps us redeemed. Not only does it transform us, it keeps us transformed. And we persevere in it. And we're not like the grass that was thrown on the rocky ground or the thorny ground that springs up for a little while and then gets choked out and, then, and, and, and brings forth no fruit to the end. But that which fell on good ground springs up and brings forth fruit with patience all the days of its life and in abundance. So, what he's saying here is look at, don't neglect this great salvation that I have provided you with. Don't turn away from it. Persevere in it. Persevere in what? In, in perfection? You know, a lot of people feel like, oh, you know, I, I, I guess I must not be saved because I sin. Well, look, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. But if you confess your sins that you do have, which I have, you have, we all have as Christians, then he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And that's a daily process. 
like Jesus washing the apostles' feet in the upper room that we have to do every day. Yes, we're justified, but we need that daily cleansing so that we don't become hardened in our sin and so that we continue to cling to the Lord. And as it says in verse 6, we hold fast the confidence of rejoicing of the hope to the end. As it says in verse 14, we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. That's what it means to persevere, people. It doesn't mean to be perfect. What it means is don't turn your back on Christ. Keep having confidence in Him. Keep trusting in Him. Keep going to Him for cleansing in, in the fountain for, for sin and uncleanness. Just go every day. And, and keep clinging to him and keep following him and keep confessing him before men and keep confessing yourself as a sinner in need of redemption. And every day, cast yourself on Jesus anew as your only hope of salvation from sin. That's what he calls us to do. Now, this is not an excuse for complacency in sin because if you are repenting and confessing, you are fighting against it and you are striving to overcome it in the process of time. You do better with that. But it's in the process of a lifetime. Um, you know, you're probably not going to defeat a sin in six weeks. More like six decades. But during those decades, you'll be making progress. All right. <clears throat> Unfortunately, there are people who don't do that. Verse 16. For some, when they had heard, did provoke. Howbeit not all, that came out of Egypt by Moses. Some didn't provoke. Some, some were faithful, right? Joshua and Caleb, remember them? Okay. Verse 12, But with whom was he grieved the forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? Now what sin did they commit? He's going to tell us. Here's the sin. And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that what? Believed not. Not to them that were sinless. It's a particular sin that they committed, that kept them out. It was a sin of unbelief. It wasn't because they lied or stole or fornicated. It's because they wouldn't believe. That's what kept them out. The sin of unbelief is what keeps you out of heaven. Not all those other sins that we think are so horrible. And they are horrible. I don't want to minimize them, okay? But the most horrible sin of all, the one that will keep you out of heaven, is an adultery. The most horrible sin that will keep you out of heaven is unbelief. It's turning your back on Jesus Christ as your only hope of salvation. That's what will keep you out. Verse 19 so we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. They didn't persevere in the covenant. And what the covenant calls upon us to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God is raised from the dead, you'll be saved. And so time and time again, the Bible says it's faith in Christ and faithfulness to Christ, persevering in that faith and following Him. That's what constitutes 
the grounds of the assurance of our salvation and our acceptance when we get to heaven. Not that we had some kind of spotless record, because we don't. Jesus makes our record spotless. You just keep clinging to him, and you'll be just fine when you appear before God. Because if you're clinging to anything else but him, like how good of a person you are, and how well you're living, and how you're so much better than those other believers, forget it. That's what the Pharisees' problem was, right? Romans chapter 10, he says, he says, Brother, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. He says, I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness which is of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that what? Believes. You don't know how many professing Christians I've had say to me, I don't believe that anymore. Breaks my heart, but they have uh, neglected so great salvation. Verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, that is, entering into heaven, any of you should seem to come short of obtaining it, is the idea. Verse 2, for unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them. Why? Not being mixed with faith in them that heard it, they didn't believe. Notice, if you will, verse 11. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. You know, God doesn't call you to be perfect as a Christian. He calls you to keep on believing. And if you do, that's how you're saved. And if you do believe, obviously, you're not going to be complacent about your sin because you believe in a Jesus who came to do what? Save you from your sins. Not save you in them, but from them. And so He saves you from them judicially at the moment of your salvation, and He saves you from them personally in the process of sanctification, and He saves you from them ultimately and finally in glorification. And so that's the wonder and the glory of the Gospel, is that Jesus does all the work, we just trust Him to do it. Now, in chapter 5, he addresses further the danger of the neglect of the covenant. He's talking about Melchizedek here, um, from Genesis 14, obviously. And he says in verse 11 of Hebrews 5, of whom, speaking of Melchizedek, we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. For when at the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, that which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe, but strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even to those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now here's a second reason why people neglect the covenant. The first reason is they get hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, as we saw back in chapter 3 and thus fall into unbelief. The second reason is that they neglect the study of the Word of God. Now it says of these people that they were ignorant and dull of hearing, which means that they wouldn't apply their minds to the Word of God. Now, some of us 
have a real problem with intellectual laziness. We don't like to think. It's hard work. We don't like to read. It's annoying. We'd rather go do something physical. Mortify that. Make yourself read the Bible and apply your mind to what you're reading so you understand. When you come and listen to sermons, pay attention to what's being said. Process it. Record it. Reflect on it. And think about it during the week and apply it to your life. Now, is that work? You bet it's work. But the alternative is just glass eye over, think about something else, let it all go past, and when you go away, you know less than when you came, because in the time that you were supposed to be learning, you've actually been forgetting. And um, neglecting. So great salvation. No Christian ever made it to heaven who wasn't a diligent student of his Bible. Because I'll tell you, there's so much of the world to pull us away from God. If we're not in the scriptures to pull us towards God, we are toast. So turn off the computer, turn off the television, put away the magazines and the books, and open your Bible and read it. It amazes me. Christians have been Christians for 20 years. You say to them, can you explain to me the doctrine of justification? Which, of course, is the most fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. And, and they, they, they couldn't spit it out. And so that's why we spend so much time studying the Bible, because our failure to study it results in our maintaining spiritual infancy. And you know, spiritual infants are a lot easier to defeat and overcome than big, strong men. I mean, like, if you're going to have a fight with somebody, wouldn't you rather fight with a two-year-old than a 20-year-old? And so Satan comes along, he picks the two-year-olds off real easy. They don't know the Bible. He can pull the wool over their eyes, send some angel of light to whisper some lies in their ears, and before you know it, they're done with biblical truth and with the Jesus Christ that's presented in the Bible. So not only must you engage in constant Christian fellowship, exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest you be hardened to the deceitfulness of sin, the second way you don't neglect the salvation is be in the book, engage your mind, and learn. I mean, most of you have gotten through college or some college. Was that work? Man, did you have to work? Yeah, you did. Well, you know what? You need to voluntarily work just as hard at the study of this book so that you can get a passing grade with God. Um, our time is running out. I want to just um, tell you about the other warnings. It's um, chapter 6, verses 1 to 12. Chapter 10, verses 19 to 39. And then I want us to get to uh, chapter 12. Now, this is our memory verse for today, okay? Chapter 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which thus so easily beset us. Here's our verse. 
And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You're in a race. It lasts a lifetime. It takes a lot of patience to get through a lifetime still maintaining faith in Christ and a walk with Christ. And, you know, in races you get tired and your side hurts. Ever had that happen to you? Okay. Well, you can sit down by the side or you can even go back to the finish, to the start line and get a drink. Or you can keep going to the end. And sometimes you're walking and limping and sometimes you're down on your hands and knees and crawling. But you've got to keep going, and as you do, the Lord will renew your strength. Those who wait on the Lord, He will renew your strength. He'll lift you up as wings as eagles, and, and, and He'll help you walk and not be weary and run and not be faint. But you've you got to look to Him and cry out to Him for strength. And there's times when I want to quit, okay? Me, the preacher, the, the strong guy, right? There's times when I want to quit. And I just cry out to the Lord, Lord, help me to persevere for the next hour, the next day, the next week. And uh, I can say God's been faithful for 40 years, but it hasn't been easy. My side has hurt the whole way. And sometimes all I can do is just crawl. Sometimes I've run. But you, get, you keep going in the same direction. You don't stop. You don't turn around. You don't go back. So run with patience the race. Now he talks about what we have. He says, verse 22, he says, You are come to Mount Sion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than Abel. That's what we have to look forward to. That's what we're headed towards. And those are the privileges we're going to enjoy. We're going to be in heaven. We're going to be with God. We're going to be with the angels. We're going to be with our fellow believers. We're going to be with Jesus Christ. And we're going to be with an unoffended judge who not only is not offended, but he is one who justifies us and declares us to be righteous in His sight. And that's why we can come boldly before Him. And so he says, verse 25, See that you refuse not Him that speaks. When God speaks in His Word, just bow. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible that seems strange, it seems contrary, it seems... Unreasonable? Don't refuse his voice. That's where apostasy always starts. If somebody runs across something in the Bible, you know, be it something about election and predestination, or be it something about the role of women in the church and the home, and they get offended. That part I'm not going to believe. That part I don't like. That part I'm going to toss out. And then it begins, and they just start tossing out more and more until they've refused him that has spoken. And so, the message of the doctrine of the covenants is simply this. You have the full fullness of God's blessing, the fullness of God's communication, the fullness of God's commitment, and the fullness of God's love shown to you. Don't turn your back on that, because if you do, it, there's no hope for you. It's impossible to renew you to repentance after you've seen all of this. You turn your back on it and walk away, you're done. You're going to hell. 
and there's no chance you'll ever wind up anywhere else. That's what Hebrews 6 says. That's what Hebrews 10 says. So, stay in the Word. Stay in fellowship. Don't refuse anything God says. Keep believing. That's what the New Covenant calls you to do. It's all it calls you to do. And uh, you will wind up in, in Mount Zion. You'll wind up in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the message of the covenants. Don't break the covenant. It's kind of like being married, right? You don't break your marriage covenant, and you wind up going into old age happy and united. You break your marriage covenant, and you're divorced, and you never get that relationship back. Okay, don't divorce God. He won't divorce you, but if you divorce him, you're done. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your holy word. Lord, we pray that you would help us to uh, not be um, overcome by the deceitfulness of sin and hardened by it. Lord, we pray that you help us to be in the book, not refuse anything that's spoken, and recognize the glorious future that you have laid up for us in the promises of the new covenant. Lord, we pray that you would help everyone here to persevere in the faith and to be found all together in heaven. The same people that are in this room, Father, that we would all be together in heaven because we persevered uh, in the new covenant that you gave to us. In Jesus' name, amen.